If you would please turn your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. We're in chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7. If you're using the Pew Bible, that's found on page 573. And this section that we're looking at this morning, this is a continuation of what we discussed last week. And if you remember, the historical situation is that Ahaz, the, the wicked king of the southern kingdom of Judah, he's facing a problem. There's this alliance of the northern kingdom, Israel, and the pagan kingdom of Syria, and they have attacked Judah. They've laid siege to the capital city of Jerusalem. But God had not allowed the attack to succeed. God was protecting his faithful remnant from annihilation. And God sent his prophet Isaiah to the king, King Ahaz, to assure him that this attack would not succeed. And all Ahaz had to do was trust God. There was nothing he needed to do. Trust God's promise to him. God even condescended to give Ahaz a sign to help him believe. Because God knows that Ahaz's faith was weak. But Ahaz refused to ask a sign. And this is not because he trusted God. It's not because he had strong faith and didn't need a sign. He refused to ask for the sign because he did not want to trust the Lord. Ahaz had already decided what he wanted to do. And he wasn't going to trust the Lord for deliverance. He was going to buy protection from the pagan kingdom of Assyria. Not the same as Assyrians, the kingdom, the empire of Assyria. And Ahaz soon discovered that the enemy of my enemy is not necessarily my friend. Because Assyria, they do eliminate the threat of Syria and Israel. But after defeating these kingdoms, then they set their sights on Judah, or the kingdom of Judah. And because of his lack of faith in God and trust in himself to solve his problem, Ahaz finds that his problem has now become much, much worse than it would have been. In chapter 8, which, which Nathan read as our Old Testament reading this morning, it tells of the carnage, it tells of the despair, the judgment experienced both by Israel and Judah. Syria and the northern king of Israel, they, they fell to Assyria, and much of Judah would also fall to Assyria. But God, as he promised, preserved Jerusalem. Assyria could not successfully defeat Jerusalem. And chapter, end, chapter 8 ends with these words. It says, they will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness and gloom and anguish. And they will trust and they will be thrust into thick darkness. And this is the state of the people. Distress, darkness, gloom, anguish. This is the context of of the reading that we're about to read. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Hear now the word of the Lord. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former times he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, And every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. 
For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this word. We thank you for this prophecy, this promise, this light that shone in the darkness. And Father, we pray that we will be able to see that light this morning. That light is our Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray that he will be seen, he will be glorified. We pray, Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you will anoint my words, that I will speak your words, your truth. Your truth is power. And Father, I pray for each one of us that we will hear We will have an encounter. We will be changed more into the image of that dear Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, we see the cycle continue, don't we? The cycle we've seen uh, that throughout our study of the book of Isaiah, and we'll continue to see as as we study it. And the cycle is simple. It's sin, judgment, grace. Sin, judgment, grace. It's It's amazing. And although the details change with each iteration, the the essence of the sin is really the same. The essence of the judgment is the same. And the source of the grace is the same. In this book, although it's addressed to people of the kingdom of Judah, it really speaks to every one of us. It speaks to the human condition. It's as much written to us today as to the original audience 2,700 years ago. And the essence of the sin described is unbelief. Unbelief. The essence of the sin of Judah the essence of our sin, it is unbelief in God, unbelief in his word, unbelief in his promises, failure to trust him, trust him alone, searching for something else, something else for our security, something else for our significance. And in this cycle, the sin is seen in Ahaz's refusal to trust the Lord to protect Judah from this wicked alliance of of Israel and Syria, but rather to, 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 to look to himself, to his own cunning, to his own skill, and go to the Assyrian Empire. Look to them, the pagans, for security. And the essence of the judgment that we see throughout this book is simply God giving us the natural consequences of our sin. In this cycle, specifically, the punishment for rejecting their, their covenant-keeping, loving God is to become a servant of the wicked Assyrian king who they chose, who is now their wicked master. And I've mentioned several times from this pulpit, every one of us is a servant, or more accurately, every one of us is a slave to someone or something. We are the servants of God, which leads to to true freedom, or we're servants to sin and self or Satan, which always leads to, to miserable bondage. And you may not like to hear this, that we are all slaves to, to someone or something. Many of us will say, no, I'm not a slave. I'm not a slave to anyone. Of course, that's what we think. But my friends, we're not made to be autonomous. No matter how much our fallen nature strives for it, we will never be God. God alone is God. God alone is autonomous. And if we refuse to be bond servants of Christ, guess what? We're going to be slaves to sin. We're going to be slaves to self. It is inevitable. And in this specific case, Ahaz and Judah, they experienced the tyranny of this new master for which they exchanged. They exchanged their covenant-keeping, loving God 
for this new master, and it brought them unspeakable horror. They're in distress, they are in darkness, they are in anguish, and they are in gloom. And this is really the condition of every single one of us, is it not? Apart from God taking initiative, apart from God giving us and bestowing on us his unmerited grace, our condition is the same. It's distress, it's darkness, it's anguish, it's gloom. And this grace is presented differently in each iteration that we look at throughout this study in Isaiah. But as is seen in this passage that we're studying this morning in this reading in chapter, in chapter 9, in, in these readings, in this passage, we see this grace again. And the essence of the grace is always the same. The source of the grace is always the same. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one to whom Isaiah points. Christ alone is the hope for the original audience. Christ alone is the hope for us today. Christ alone is the hope, really, for all mankind. And we know this passage is messianic. We know that it points to Christ, the Messiah, because Scripture explicitly tells us so. In our Gospel reading from Matthew 4, we are told that Jesus fulfills this very prophecy. And we're going to go through this text this morning. We're going to go verse by verse, and we're going to make a few observations and a few applications. So let's dive right in. Verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Well, immediately what we see here is the undoing of these, this judgment, the undoing of the natural consequences of the sin. The people were in distress. They were in darkness. They were in gloom. They were in anguish. And here we see that there is no gloom. God takes the initiative, and God brings hope where there was only gloom. In the land of Zebulun, in the land of Naphtali, these were the, the northernmost regions of Israel. And these were the, the regions that were first to experience the invasion of the Assyrian uh, Empire. And there were Jew, Jerusalem was preserved, supernaturally preserved, and they wouldn't fall until the Babylonians for over 100 years later. These regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, they fell quickly. And what's worse is they were assimilated. They were assimilated by the pagans. They lost their distinctiveness. They lost their coveted distinctiveness as God's people. And notice that the city of Galilee, which is in this region, is called Galilee of the Gentiles or Galilee of the nations. It's the same Hebrew word. But you notice it's not Galilee of the Israelites. And we see in, in Matthew 4 that this, re this same region is that the same region that Jesus goes to begin his ministry. In Matthew 4.12 and following, we say, Now when he had heard that John had been arrested, Jesus withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went into the, and, and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that, he, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. This prophecy that we are reading this morning. And the first region to fall is now the first region to receive mercy, to receive the ministry of the Messiah. In addition, Galilee of the Gentiles foreshadows Jesus' ministry, his, his message of the gospel, going beyond the nation of Israel, now including the Gentiles. Moving on to verse 2, it says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Darkness here is speaking about spiritual darkness. 
See, the problem in the context of Judah at the time of, of Ahaz, the problem at the time when Jesus was here during his ministry, and the problem in our own time is the same. It is spiritual darkness. See, people are blind, blind to the ways of God. They simply cannot perceive the things of God. And this blindness comes at first because they are unwilling to see the light that has been provided for them. They are willingly blind to this light that God has given to them. And then as a judgment for this willful blindness, God removes what little light they already had until they are in complete spiritual darkness. And my friends, the craziness that we see in this world today, where people act completely contrary to nature, this is the result of this judgment. This is not bringing judgment. It is judgment. We are seeing judgment now in our very day, before our very eyes. This is Romans chapter 1 playing out. If you're not familiar with Romans 1, read it. and You will see it could be written to us today. It is what we are seeing. In Romans 1, it says, Because they knew God but refused to honor him and give him thanks, God turned them over. God gave them this blindness. But in this verse, we see Jesus. Jesus is the light that has come into the world. In chapter 1 of his gospel, John speaking about Jesus says, In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. My friends, this is Jesus. Jesus is the light. And what is the function of light? Light allows us to see reality, to accurately see reality. And Jesus is spiritual light. It is only by Jesus that we can understand reality, ultimate reality. See, in Ahaz's time, and in Jesus' time, in our time, People reject this light. And why? Why do we reject the light? Because they don't want to know the truth. They've created their own reality. A reality that allows them to do what they want, live the way they want. And they don't want the light. They reject the light. And this is exactly what we saw last week with with Ahaz and his refusal for a sign. He didn't want to see. He didn't want the light. And why? Because if he actually saw then he would need to change. It's the same with us. If we actually saw, we would need to change. We would be obligated to change. He didn't want to see the light. We do not want to see the light. Moving on to verse 3. We see great joy of the Messianic age. It says, you have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the harvest, at the, as joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. See, when their eyes are opened to the truth, when this grace has been given to them, when the darkness has been removed, and they see see that God's unmerited favor has been given to us, God's grace has been given to us, the natural response, the natural response is joy. The natural response is to rejoice, is to praise the God. It is to worship. My friends, we cannot not worship when we experience Christ, when we see him. Jesus says that the very rocks would cry out in worship if we don't worship. See, this is a natural response of the redeemed to the glory of God. It is to worship. That's what we're doing this morning, is worshiping God. When we see God, we cannot not worship. And notice that the source of this joy is not the blessings that he's given them. No, the source of joy is the Lord himself. Their rejoicing is compared to the joy of, of great material blessings, such as a harvest or dividing the spoil. But the source is not the material blessing. The source is the Lord himself. And we see this further in verse 4. 
where it says, for the yoke of his burden and the staff of his, for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. And the key to understanding this verse is this last verse where it, says, where it says, on the day of Midian. What does this mean, on the day of Midian? Well, this is a reference, if you remember, from Judges and Gideon and Gideon's 300 men. You remember the story? Gideon's going against the, the Midianites. He's already outnumbered. He's probably outnumbered 10 to 1. But God says, you still have too many people. And he goes through and he reduces it. And he goes down to just a fraction of what he has. And God says, you still have too many people. And he goes down. He eventually goes down to 300 men. He's going up to several hundred thousand Midianites with 300 men. They're outnumbered more than 1,000 to 1. And they're going up against the, the Midianites. And do you remember why the Lord commanded Gideon to reduce the number of men? Well, so that Gideon would not be tempted. Tempted to take credit for this great victory that the Lord had already decided to give him. The Lord could have just sent one. The Lord didn't have to send any. The Lord could have just struck them all down himself. But he wanted to make it clear that the Lord was the one who was doing it. It wasn't Gideon. And he had to realize that this victory is solely because of the Lord. In verse 5, we see the, we're given an image of the, of the aftermath of a great victory. The victory that came not from their own work, but from the Lord. But then we come to verse 6. And verse 6 is, is the highlight of this passage. This is probably the most well-known verse in this chapter. Probably the most uh, well-known verse, maybe one of the most well-known verses in all of Isaiah and, and even all of the Bible. And verse 6 really brings us to the source of the grace. Right? We've seen the grace throughout this passage, but now we're coming to the source. We were seeing what the Lord was doing. Now we see the Lord himself. Now we see him. We now, now we see how he does it. And it's through a child. A child. And the mention of the child, it should draw back to what we have looked at last week. This sign. This sign of Emmanuel. God with us. And here we're given more information about this Emmanuel child. Who Matthew has, has identified as Jesus. So we're going to go through, we're going to look at this verse um, Part by part. Starts off for, to us a child is born, to us a son is given. So we see, we see repetition here. And in one sense, the repetition of a, a child is born and a, a son is given is used for, for emphasis. Isaiah is highlighting this is the most important part of the prophecy. They don't have, in Hebrew, they don't have bold face. They don't underline what they do. They don't have all caps. What they use is repetition. Right, just what we saw a couple of weeks ago in, in chapter 6 when, when the angel says, holy, holy, holy. This is emphasis. That's the reason for the repetition. So we see the same thing. Isaiah here is emphasizing the importance of this child, the centrality of this Emmanuel child. But there's even more here. And humanly speaking, I don't think Isaiah even knew, truly knew what he was communicating. Because in these two statements... We see both Jesus' humanity and we see his deity in these two statements. A child is born. This is the natural way a child comes into the world. Jesus was born. Jesus was a real person. Jesus was a real man. He was fully human. But the next statement, a son is given. This refers to his deity. Jesus is the eternal son of God. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. And the eternal Son of God cannot be born since he always was. But the eternal Son is given to us by the Father. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son 
that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So the Messiah, in order to be the savior of his people, in order to be the substitute for his people, he had to be both fully man and fully God. He had to be fully man in order to identify with his people as the substitute for his people. Man sinned and the penalty was required to be paid by man. But he also had to be fully God. He had to be fully God in order to have the capacity to pay for our sin. See, the debt that was owed due to sinning against an infinite God, that is an infinite debt. And a finite man could never, ever, even spend an eternity in hell, could never pay that debt. Only the infinite God. Only the infinite God has the capacity to pay that debt and make an atonement for our sins. The next phrase in verse 6 says, And the government shall be upon his shoulder. This speaks to Christ's rightful place as ruler of his creation. Christ is the rightful king. We, we, we acknowledge him as the king of the church, but he's not just king of the church. He's king of everything. Christ is the king of America. He's the king of Russia. He's the king of India. He's the king of China. He is the king of all creation. Now, yes, we have a, a separation of church and state, but there is no separation from church or, or from state and God. The church and the state, these, these are two institutions that are ordained by God. They are both under God. They are under the kingship of Christ. In our Pledge of Allegiance, we acknowledge this reality with the statement that there is one na- we are one nation under God. God is the sovereign of the United States, just as God is the sovereign of every single nation. Now we can think of it currently, we are, the world is occupied. It is occupied by rebels against the true king. But one day our king will come. He will return. He will banish. He will destroy all his enemies. But now, now Christ's rightful reign is disputed. It's rejected by those who hate God. God is mocked. God is despised. But God patiently endures this blasphemy from the the rulers and the kings of this world. But God's patience is not due to weakness. No, it's because of his mercy. He is giving time to repent. It's time to come to him before it is too late. The remainder of verse 6 gives us more names of this child, more names for the Messiah. We already know that his name was Emmanuel, God with us, but here we have more names. And each one of these names describes a different aspect of his messianic function. And these names are Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. A wonderful counselor. This relates to him being the light we talked about already. A wonderful counselor would be someone who guides us to the truth. And for the Christian, we have access to the truth. We have access to reality. Do you realize that? We have access to the truth. We have a gift that most of the people of the world do not have. We have light where most have darkness. We have clarity where most have confusion. And this benefit that we enjoy, it's not because of anything in us. It's not some natural superiority inherent to us. It is only because of Christ. It is only because of our wonderful counselor who leads us in the truth. And this doesn't mean that we're going to have all the answers. But we do have something that unbelievers do not have. We have the light. We have the Holy Spirit who leads us in the truth. And most importantly, he helps us understand the source of the truth in this world, which is an an errant word. The next name here is Mighty God. This is basically an explicit statement 
of the deity of this child. He is God himself. He is the mighty God himself. This child that was born, the son that was given, is the Lord God himself. Moving on to everlasting father, this can cause us some confusion. Because this is not denying the Trinity. This is not saying that God the Son is the same person as God the Father. This verse does not teach modalism. And we've discussed that several times in Sunday school. Modalism is basically saying that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not three divine persons in the one God, which is what Orthodox Trinitarianism teaches. But rather the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they are one person manifesting three different modes. This is heretical. But everlasting Father here is referring to Jesus being the source of all creation. Jesus is the creator. And this is in alignment with John's statement in in the first chapter of his gospel. He says, all things were created through him, were created through the word, were created through Jesus. Prince of Peace. Jesus, as the only mediator between God and man, he brings peace between God and man. The sin that separates us from a holy God is punished in Christ. And for those who are united to Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, there is now peace where there once was enmity. And Jesus is that prince of peace. He brings us peace with God. But Jesus not only brings us peace between God and man, he also brings peace among men. See, what is the reason? Think about it. What is the reason that we don't have peace in this fallen world? Why don't we have peace with one another? We see see enmity and strife within families, within marriages, between nations. What is the reason for all this enmity, for this strife? And it's because of sin. James in his epistle says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Sin. Sin is the reason why we don't have peace in this world. But when we are a new creation in Christ, our thinking changes. We are no longer controlled by our sinful passions, but we are controlled by the Holy Spirit. And this allows us to live at peace with others. Not perfectly, of course, because there still is much, much remaining sin within us. But one day, one day when we are glorified, We will live at perfect peace, not only with God, but with all the saints as well. And what a glorious thought. No arguments, no more enmity, no more strife. What a marvelous thought. And this leads us into verse 7. Verse 7 expands our view. It expands from from our earthly existence to our eternal existence. From, From this fallen world to our eternal home and the new heavens and the new earth. And verse 7 says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And this peace that we experience now, it will continue. It will increase without end. Think about that. God's perfect and just rule will continue and it will just get better and better. And this, this is really an aspect that I think is difficult for us to, to wrap our, our minds around. The new heavens and the new earth will be, will be utterly perfect from day one. But it will continue. It will still continue to get better. It will continue to increase and get better for all eternity. And we said, how could this be? How could something that is perfect get more perfect? 
Well, I think we, we, we tend to think is perfection as the end point. See, in this life, as Christians, we continue day by day to put our, to put our sins to death, to become more like Christ, to become more perfect. And we know that we will never achieve this in this world, but this is our goal. This is what sanctification is. This is what the Christian life is, is to become more and more like Christ, who is perfect. And we know we will never reach it in this life. But we also know, when we take our last breath in this fallen world, at that instant, the Lord will perfect us. We will become like Christ at that very moment when we take our last breath. All remaining sin will be removed from us, and we will be like Christ. We will be glorified. This is the promise that is given to each and every Christian, each and every one of us who is a new creation in Christ. But my friends, glorification is just the starting point. We will still get, we, we will start off perfect, but every day we will get more and more perfect. You say, how can that be? But what is changing is us. What is changing is our capacity for righteousness. We will be perfect from day one, but our capacity will continue to increase for all eternity. It's kind of like you know, our cup will be full from day one. But as we are in glory, as we spend time in the presence, the direct presence of our Lord, our cups will continue to grow and get bigger and bigger, and those cups will be full. See, some people think that, that he, our eternal existence will be, will be static and boring, will be sitting on a cloud playing a harp. My friends, nothing could be further from the truth. We will be with him. We will see him directly. We will see Christ and we will continue to grow in our capacity to enjoy him, to experience him. See, because he is infinite and we are finite, we will continue to grow and grow. And this growth and excitement will increase for all eternity. And we can't even quite understand. We can't comprehend it. But we know that it will be amazing. The last verse. The last line of the last verse. It says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And what this does is it makes it clear that the Lord is the one who takes the initiative. All this is accomplished by him and him alone. And because of this, because it's entirely of the Lord, it's not dependent on, on our own weak and, and fallible efforts. It's all of him. Because of this, it is guaranteed. If it had even had uh, 1%, it was me, I would mess that 1% up. But it is all of him. And because of that, it is guaranteed. It cannot fail. This, my friends, this is our hope. And this prophecy, this prophecy made 700 years before Christ's birth, this was an encouragement to Isaiah. It was an encouragement to his contemporaries who were looking forward to its fulfillment. But we are looking backward. It's just as much an encouragement to us as we look backward to the event, to the incarnation, a real event that took place in time and space. And this child born, this son given, this is the Messiah. He is God in the flesh. He did what we could not do. He took the initiative. He removed the curse. He undid the fall. And although we have much greater light than Isaiah, much more knowledge than Ahaz had, much more knowledge than Isaiah had, in one sense, we are not much different. See, we have promises, and many of these promises have been filled. But like the original recipients of this prophecy, we do not yet have the final fulfillment. We're not yet in glory. And because of this, we too must live by faith. 
Faith that this prophecy will one day be complete. Faith that the promises that will one day find their consummation. And one day our faith will be turned to sight. My friends, this is real. This is guaranteed. And we simply must stand firm, resting in Christ while we wait for this final completion. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this vision. And we know that we really can't wrap our minds around all that is here. But Father, I pray that you will give us comfort, that you will give us peace, that you will give us hope, that you will give us joy, and that this will lead us to just want to worship you more, to sing your praises more. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. If we'd please stand for our song, which is Joy Has Dawned in your insert.